Hey, welcome back to the 92nd episode of the OpFat Cast. I am Steve Cuff, and we are doing things a little bit differently today. Uh, we're not covering your, your traditional films. Uh, we're not jumping into our, our new big project that we've got for you quite yet. And we're going to talk about wrestling. So if you're not a wrestling fan, um, you know, maybe stick around anyways. You might learn something. I promise we're not going to get too weird and fanboyish on you. Joining me today, I got Adam Myros. Hi, Steve. Uh, we're, we're doing the old WrestlePania reunion, huh? WrestleMania reunion, baby. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. And then uh, also joining us today, we got Stephen Coleman. Hey, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's been a while, buddy. When was the last uh, WrestleMania? Fuck. Four years ago? Probably three, four years ago. Something like yeah. that. Back in action. Uh, but it, it truly is uh, reminiscent of my favorite Stain song, so it has been a while. Uh, glad you guys are here. So what, what we're talking about today is the reason we were doing wrestling. Um, one, to annoy Sean. Two, uh, wrestling's gotten really fucking weird. And for a lot of people out there, maybe maybe you don't watch wrestling, and maybe you do, and that's great either way. But a, a big part of wrestling, and I think a big part of wrestling discourse and fan discourse is talking about the role that the fans play and the crowds play in professional wrestling and how important that can be. Uh, you know, when whenever someone's watching a movie, you may have a high opinion of it or you may think it's shit, but you're not there watching it live, screaming at the performers <laughs> and hoping they'll change something. And likewise, even in other live entertainment, say, theater or something it, it doesn't usually work like that but wrestling is known for kind of having this relationship with the audience where it's supposed to be responsive so if someone's getting booed but they're not supposed to be booed then maybe you won't see them again or maybe they'll get repackaged or maybe they'll go from a good guy to a bad guy uh, likewise if someone's getting cheered and you don't want them to be cheered because they're supposed to be the bad guy uh, you might rethink that so what does wrestling look like and sound like and feel like when you don't have an audience? And that's something we've never had to deal with before until now. So I guess since WWE has been running shows, TV specifically, for about a month now without an audience at all, what has that been like leading up to their big pay-per-view WrestleMania this month? And that's kind of that's kind of the question I'm posing for you guys. So Coleman, I know you've been watching probably more religiously than the rest of us. Mm. What were your first impressions when, when you were when you were watching this weird new thing? How is it different from what you're used to seeing? It's just the the thing that sticks out to me the most is just the in ring promos with no crowd. So and if there's back and forth, let's say Kevin Owens and. Seth Rollins are in the ring at the same time, jawjacking at each other. It really changes the narrative in a way where it's just, if you were flipping through the channels and you just came across Raw with no audience and there was just two big guys yelling at each other with no context, it's very, it's very bizarre. And but the strange thing is, I think that they're acting. They seem to be acting harder. Because they're not reacting to crowd noise. They're just sort of putting on this play. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that's been, I think, at least the most bizarre thing for me. But it's also heightening the performances. Um, as far as like the wrestling aspect of it, 
I was expecting to hear like a lot more called shots. I haven't been hearing that, but especially like somebody like Asuka is wrestling, just hearing all the, the screams and hearing all the wheezing has added a new element to it that I actually kind of enjoy. Um, makes it seem more intense. Yeah. I, I, I've i kind of struggled with this because the thing that it reminds me the most of is if you go on YouTube right now, if you're listening, why don't you pause this for a second, hop on YouTube and look up a sitcom without the laugh track. I think I think people have done this with like Big Bang Theory or some other shit, but it completely changes the tone and the dynamic of what the performers are doing. Or try to imagine a stand-up comedian doing a performance and instead of reacting to the audience's laughter and, and pausing for, for laughs or reactions, they're just talking to you. It's super bizarre. And the other thing that, that struck me as odd, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit too, Myros, but I, I think it's it's been weird watching how WWE has has handled this production because in the beginning specifically, and they've adapted a little bit, but not a ton, but in the beginning... They were shooting the show and having the performers perform and do their promos and everything else like it was a regular episode of Monday Night Raw or, you know, SmackDown or whatever. They were just pretending like the audience was there, even though it wasn't, even though you weren't getting any reactions. And I got to agree, it makes the in-ring promos super weird because there's no reaction they're acting super hard, or at least it seems that way because there's no reaction and there's no music or anything either. So it's just, it's very, very strange. And I think it works well for someone like uh, Bray Wyatt or The Fiend is his alter ego where he's supposed to be creepy and intense. And other guys, it's just, it's unnerving and kind of difficult to watch in the wrong kind of way. Myros, what do you think about this? Have you watched a lot of the weird audience list wrestling? Uh, just WrestleMania, just WrestleMania. I've, uh, been curiously sort of following it and, uh, with the big show coming up, I, I made a point to, to sign up for the old network and, um, just, I wanted to see this thing. I was curious because, well, A, they, they handled it in, they, their plans included various different ways to handle it with the pre-tape stuff and, and all of it seemed fascinating to me as, as still something of an outsider. I, I haven't kept up since we ended our project with the wrestling, I, I still follow it quite regularly. I just don't actually watch the thing, <laughs> but, uh, especially yeah. in all of this, it's just like, I, I imagine it would be very awkward. And then when I went into WrestleMania, I was, uh, half validated and half surprised. I would say, I, I feel like it, it really separates the uh, weed from the chaff, if you will. Like it's, um, you can tell who the more more gifted performers are in ring and, and the people who can adapt to this set of circumstances. And there are people who really rely on uh, crowd reaction in a way that, that really makes their matches feel just downright bizarre. Yeah. And before we get into the WrestleMania stuff, I think it is important to point out that there's there's multiple examples of, of what this can look like. So we kind of talked about what WWE has been doing, which is, you know, show as usual. It's just really fucking weird now. And when you compare that to what AEW is doing, which is their competition that runs a show on TNT on Wednesday nights, it's 
honestly night and day. And I think AEW has figured out, I don't know if it's a better formula, but it's easier to digest and it, it feels less jarring to me. But what they've been doing is they've sort of reformatted the show so that they've changed their camera angles. So they're not exposing the fact that they just have all these weird empty chairs, which is the WWE thing. There's constant like panning shots and hard camera shots of just empty chairs everywhere, which is extremely strange. Uh, so what AEW's done is they yeah, they changed all the camera angles. And then instead of just having no audience, the performers who aren't performing are at ringside. <laughs> And they're kind of like a, a surrogate audience of sorts. And sometimes they get involved in what's going on in the ring, and that's kind of cool. And other times they're, they're just there, you know, they're they're cheering, they're reacting. And it's not this booming crowd roar that you're used to, but it's enough. It's it's almost reminiscent of going to see wrestling at like a VFW hall where you're not getting these, you know, huge ground-shaking pops of, of audience reaction, but you're getting just enough where it feels like there's something. Um, but for WWE, since they're the main show here, uh, going into WrestleMania, I wasn't sure if they were going to fundamentally change anything. But for me, it seems like this is where it finally started to click for some people. And like you pointed out, Myros, this is where you're able to see everything just laid bare and and who's able to adapt to this and who's not. So... Uh, some of the early matches, I know there. I think it, the show kicked off with uh, a women's tag team match, and that one had me worried because it was fundamentally like if you just watched it, if you were at a, a big party and someone had it on mute, and you and you didn't know that this was like this new era of weird silent wrestling, then I think you'd be like, oh, this is a this is a good match. I'd like to watch this, but watching it <laughs> just with the the new normal for them it was bizarre for me because they were all still mugging to a crowd that didn't exist and maybe not adapting in the ways that I thought they should have uh whereas some of the other performers you mentioned you know Kevin Owens is a great example Sami Zayn is another one they figured out that not only do you have to hit a little bit harder and sell the fact that you're getting hit a little bit harder but it helps to have some I don't know, like in-ring trash talking, something to kind of fill the void of the strange silence of watching two people dressed in spandex beat the shit out of each other. So, I, yeah, I guess going into it and just watching the first couple of matches, how did you guys just deal with the weirdness of all this? Well, I initially had to get over the fact that uh, Nikki Cross was hugging Alexa Bliss. And just my social distancing instincts kicked in immediately once the show started <laughs> and it became troublesome pretty much throughout the event. Um, like how are they able to touch each other so much? Um, but yeah, I think the whole idea that some performers are still playing to a crowd that isn't there is sort of made me think that that's just what they're trained to do. So even if there is nobody there, they have to play to the crowd or, and you definitely, I mean, we have the knowledge that all wrestlers, especially in WWE, are trained to face the hard camera, but it becomes way more obvious, I think, in this scenario. Um, but I feel like the performances were in the ring were 
Still good. Um, I think everybody, as far as I could tell, was sort of upping that trash-talking aspect. Um, and maybe that's something that they always do, and we just see it more because there's no audience, or we hear it more because there's no audience. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know, it took a while, but I think by the time we at least got to the tag team ladder match, I'd kind of forgotten that there was no audience and didn't really matter to me. I think one of the things I'm going to swing back to throughout this conversation is that it, it, it really makes me think about uh, the WWE way of doing things, because I think a lot of that, you can almost draw a line from the people who can adapt are people who've worked in a lot of different promotions, maybe came up in the Indies and they're used to working several different ways and, and they're able to take this scenario and really shift. And then you have people like say Elias Sampson, who is dead silent throughout his match with Corbin. And Hey, that's, that's a production decision that doesn't make any sense anyway, because that's a, that's a match that, only works to get a crowd pop it's not no one wants to watch those two fucking guys wrestle (laughs) but uh there's no crowd to pop so it's just a bizarre thing to even leave on the card frankly but yeah i'd say the same with bliss and cross versus oscar oscar is obviously able to adapt to this and is a very flamboyant uh, performer who is selling the hell out of this scenario and then on the other side you've got nikki cross was just kind of very strange and awkward to watch throughout the match. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think for me, it really started to pick up when the ladder match started. So this was a bizarre one because another thing that WWE is doing is they pre-taped a bunch of stuff prior to WrestleMania, but Vince McMahon is a notorious asshole. No. And so... (laughs) No, no, not at all. But uh, his his whole thing was, I mean, the guy's weird, like legitimately weird. There's stories about him where he said that like he doesn't get sick and he doesn't believe in illness and things like that. But at the same time, if you sneeze around Vince McMahon, he gets really mad. Like he's <laughs> notorious for kicking people out of rooms for sneezing near him, which is super weird. Uh, and I got a lot of allergies, so I can never be near him, unfortunately. There goes my wrestling career. <laughs> Um, but they, they pre-taped a bunch of stuff and then leading up to the show, there were a bunch of WWE superstars who may not have COVID-19, but were exposed to it in a way where they could not be around other performers or other people in general. So you had this match that was supposed to be a ladder match with three different tag teams and what it turned into because one of the members of one of the tag teams was quarantining was one member from each of the tag teams, but they're still fighting for the tag belts and there's still two belts. So you're already starting from a strange place, but I think just the the strange visceral violence of the silence of a, an arena with guys like breaking their bodies on steel ladders, that's what really kind of put it over the top for me and, and maybe say, okay, well, you know, this, this can be genuinely good. And watching a guy like Morrison, uh, John Morrison, 
who is another person who I think he originally came up in WWE, but he spent a lot of time on the indies and just watching him completely break his body on these ladders just to get that extra sound, that extra effect and, and really selling it. That was great for me. That was the turning point. It also reminded me of the uh, awkward interaction I had with him at Mondo Lucha. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> well, just for context, so for anybody who's listening to this who isn't from Milwaukee, every year there's this Lucha slash burlesque slash concert that's called Mondo Lucha centered around a, a wrestling card. And we were there, was this 2018, I think? Uh, Because I didn't go to 2019, but uh, it was headlined by Johnny Nitra or John Morrison. And he wins the match. He wins the Mondo Lucha belt. And after the event, he's going around shaking hands with fans who want to shake his hand. And we had had ringside seats. (laughs) And I wasn't reaching my hand out. I wasn't really even looking at him. But he just kind of like came over by me and he stopped. And I caught eyes with him. He's like, hey, how's it going? And he put his hand out. <laughs> like, okay, fine. I'll shake your hand. I'm sorry. Coleman, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, get, I get you these ringside seats and you can't even shake the hand of the main event champion. Come on. Come on. <laughs> what are you doing? And he, he didn't seem like pissed off, but he was just like weird out. It's like, what? You don't want to like greet me and shake my hand? What's the problem? Oh. <laughs> And maybe when you get back to WWE in two years. And I thought he did a great job, by the way, at WrestleMania. That was that was a really I liked the ending. Uh, that was mm-hmm. a pretty interesting way to pull that off. I thought that it was very unique and brought something original to a ladder match or I guess any championship match. But yeah, yeah, he's a prime example of a guy that I think WWE wasted the first time around, which they're they're known to do. Um, and they have several superstars now, uh, including current champions who were guys that they completely just whiffed on and they went out and did their thing on the indies and came back and, and had productive careers with WWE. But yeah, Morrison's always been a guy where you see him wrestling these indie shows or even when he was on TNA and you're like, he has way too much talent and he's way too big and he's way too good to be working these shows. Like even at Mondo Lucha. God, he looked like a giant compared to everyone else. And just his his skill level is is through the roof. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons why he was able to succeed is definitely his adaptability. But also, I think he's a guy who never got a very big head about where he was and, and what his career trajectory was. Um, like, you know, when, he, when he's wrestling these little indie house shows, I never once witnessed him just act like a diva or a dick to local just Milwaukee talent regular guys who you know probably work a nine to five and then go break their bodies at night in front of 10 people at a VFW hall like he treated those people as peers and you know I think it that attitude kind of shines through in his work and you really get to see it when again you're in a situation where really who these guys are and what they're capable of it's it's all here there's nothing to hide behind so Uh, the other thing that stuck out to me too, and I kind of wonder how much of this was shot in sequence and how much of it was, was just kind of cobbled together later, but it almost felt to me, maybe it was me adapting to what, 
what the WrestleMania situation was like without 80,000 people. Um, but it seemed like the show was getting better as it went along uh, in terms of wrestlers adapting to to the arena. And where it really hit its stride for me was uh, the Rhea Ripley-Charlotte Flair match, which was maybe the best of the night as far as traditional matches go. So I kind of want to see what you guys uh, thought about that one. Well, that's night two, isn't it? That is night two. That is night two. You're right. But that's another thing, too. It's just like, okay, how much of this was shot in sequence, but also the usual like seven-hour WrestleMania death march was split into two nights, thankfully. <laughs> but, yeah, did, did you guys... How, how did that one feel to you guys? Because for me, that was pretty much the apex of, of what this crowdless wrestling can be. I think it was probably my second favorite of the traditional matches. Uh, I was very fond of the Kevin Owens-Seth Rollins match. Uh, that was probably my favorite thing on the card outside of uh, what we'll get into uh, later. But yeah, I thought Ripley was very, very impressive. Uh, again, very adaptable to this. Like she was selling and not selling to a crowd, but selling to the actual audience that was watching the thing. And yeah, I Charlotte Flair is great as well. It was just a... It was a clinic, I think. I think it was a fantastic match. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I do think, uh, like you, Adam, uh, my favorite match of the entire WrestleMania was probably that Kevin Owens-Seth Rollins match. Um, but if that's 1A, then 1B would definitely be Charlotte and Rhea Ripley. I think, and this is <laughs> kind of me marking out a little bit, I think my biggest disappointment with that match is that Rhea Ripley did not come out on top. I was a little yeah. surprised by that. A little disappointed with that. Yeah, I had heard, you know, a lot of people react the same way. But I think a lot of that is kind of, and trust me, if you want to talk booking, I, I have questions for you guys. As someone who will never fully grasp the uh, the Vince McMahon booking style because I grew up on WCW. <laughs> it's a very different uh, type of booking. Uh, for better or for worse. It's a Kevin Sullivan man over here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Likes that old school stuff. So, you know, to me, this is very dependent on where they go. Like, I, I could see the rationale for doing it. Like, if they want to move Ripley up and throw Flair in NXT because, you know, that women's division on the main roster has kind of been... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talented performers, but they seem to keep throwing, like, the same two or three people against each other over and over and over again. So it, it, it makes it could be interesting to have uh, Charlotte take on a bunch of NXT people and maybe throw Rhea up on Raw and see where it goes from there. Because that could be a lot of fun, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's WWE, so it, they'll probably not do anything interesting with it. But uh, I don't hate it. Yeah. And I, I think it even goes back to um, I was actually in attendance at the Survivor Series in Chicago back in November and the pop that Rhea Ripley was getting at that event in Chicago. Like I thought for sure, like, Oh man, they're going to bring her up to the main roster by mania and put the championship on her. I mean, even though she went in as NXT champion, um, I don't know. I, but I, now that you're saying that, Adam, I guess that, that makes more sense that, yeah, they'll find a way to bring her up to the main roster and, you know, maybe I should just shut up. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, I'll I'll get that, I'll get on that side of the fence uh, when we talk about perhaps the the other uh, women's championship match because that one's a real head scratcher. Yeah, 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 I I don't understand that at all, and and we can kind of get into that. Uh, the last thing I'll say on the, on the Rhea Ripley Charlotte Flair thing is I, I didn't want Rhea Ripley to lose, but it seemed inevitable to me. Like I wasn't I wasn't surprised at all, just because when she's down in NXT they kind of strapped a rocket to her more or less. And I, I wouldn't say that she's not ready or anything like that, but just it seemed like there was nowhere to take her and nothing to do with her at that point. And it was too much too fast. And it, it just seemed natural that, that she would lose this match to Charlotte. Um, I also think she kind of has a problem that a lot of great women's wrestlers have in the WWE which is they have these really poorly defined characters. And with the exception of a few, it's mostly your character is I'm pretty and stuck up or I'm like a weird punk rock girl (laughs) to which she falls into the latter category. And it just wonder. It makes me wonder about the long term viability of her gimmick and how she's presented. And it also makes me feel bad about other talented wrestlers, talented women wrestlers, uh, who I wonder what their ceiling is really because they they don't have a lot to work with. You know, I constantly think about Liv Morgan's career and and what that is, where she's just basically like dime store other wrestlers. <laughs> You know, like what's what's the fundamental difference between her and Alexa Bliss from two years ago? And the answer is not a lot. So uh, but getting into the other women's match, this one did not click for me for a a number of reasons. But I I think the big thing was uh, Becky Lynch, the the champion, comes in uh, to wrestle against Shayna Baszler, who's been presented as a giant monster. So. On the men's side of things, you have an MMA guy like Brock Lesnar, who is seen as like a legitimate threat, a legitimate fighter. Uh, He's got a a very rough, different MMA-inspired style, and he basically just beats the shit out of people. Like A lot of his matches, you just kind of wince in pain for the other person because it looks very, very real and not fun for anyone. And Baszler has that that same kind of energy to her. And she looks like a gargoyle, too, which that helps. Uh, but <laughs> the thing that took me out of this instantly was Becky Lynch had this big WrestleMania moment or what would have been a WrestleMania moment. So WrestleMania is it's the Super Bowl. It's this huge spectacle above everything else, even more so than that, where how these guys enter the arena or enter into the ring it's often just as entertaining and in many cases more entertaining than the matches themselves. I mean, I've seen people come in on tanks before, you know, Rusev a few years ago. Uh, Triple H came in in like a Terminator outfit with like T-1000s around him and just all this crazy stuff where even if you're not a wrestling fan, you're like, holy shit, this is ridiculous. And so Becky Lynch comes to the arena in a Becky Lynch wrapped semi-truck 
but it just shows her with no audience reaction, no music, no nothing. She just pulls up in a semi truck with her face on it, and then just gets out, and then just silently walks into and the arena. The, she she honks the horn. There is a horn honk, yes, to yeah. announce to no one that she has arrived. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, oh boy, okay, here we go. And uh, yeah, uh, what did you guys think about this one? I uh, let me kick off because this this is the prime thing I'm talking about when I say like. I think a lot of the reason I've had trouble sticking with wrestling, even though it, it has become an interest of mine, I, I do still keep up with it regularly. I watch content weekly, but I don't actually watch the matches because they perplex me. I, I, I feel like I can never get quite on the same wavelength with the way WWE works. And I guarantee I would like AEW much more because they're consciously mimicking that sort of Southern wrestling it's a heel promotion. And that that's the big distinction is that Vince McMahon never ran a heel promotion. And my mind works that I'm always thinking like a viewer of a heel promotion. And I'm like, why the fuck are, aren't they making Becky Lynch chase? Like, what is the point of keeping the belt on her? It makes no sense at all to me. Like it's just the, the whole appeal to baby face is the chase. And Vince McMahon doesn't do that. That's not the way they've ever really booked. They, you know, they'll, They'll have long runs with Hogan. God only knows if they had Goldberg in the 90s, how long they would have kept a belt out of about 10 years. probably. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it's just a very different style of booking. And to me, I, even going back to the Oscar feud, I was like, well, wow, this makes no fucking sense. Why the hell would they not beat Becky here? She's obviously getting less and less over with the crowd. She needs something to chase. And they just keep having her win and win and win. And I, I don't know. It's just another thing where the crowd's going to turn on her like they do with all of their fucking baby faces. Mm -hmm. What well, and her whole persona is built around this idea that you know she's she's tougher than everyone else and she'll do whatever it takes to win and blah 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 blah. But when she's just sort of easily cutting through the roster and not using her position as an underdog, like she has, there's there's no forces working against her at this point. So it, it's kind of it, it's a little bit harder to get behind her, even though. I think she's great in the ring. She's fun to watch. She's a good personality. Uh, I, I like where she's taken her character, but there's there's just nothing for her, pretty much. Coleman, I, I know I know you're a, a Becky Lynch <laughs> supporter, so maybe you have a little bit of a different opinion on this one. Well, I think it's more down to maybe Vince McMahon and other people in like the front office or the head of creative who are kind of down on Shanda Baszler. I think that had more to do with it, just like reading reports in the months leading up to WrestleMania, again, being in Chicago when they had that triple threat match with Becky Lynch, Bailey, and Shayna Baszler, and the crowd just completely turned on them. And a lot of that was when Shayna Baszler and Becky Lynch were actually in the ring. But I think they had built up so much to this inevitable Shayna Baszler-Becky Lynch match at WrestleMania that they just had to press forward with it. And once they would get to that point, they would just kind of, I mean, not bury Shayna Baszler, but not have her go over. And I was actually not surprised that she lost. Um, I was kind of expecting it, in fact. And I don't think that's because of any praise necessarily for Becky Lynch, but I think it's just that the WWE is just down on Shayna Baszler. And even looking, I mean, obviously we don't have any champions going on the today show <laughs> the day after mania this year but i think wwe as a corporation still views 
somebody like Becky Lynch is somebody who is easier to present as like the face of the company. And Mm -hmm. I could see them being very vain and being very uncomfortable (laughs) sending somebody like Shayna Baszler out on to like Fallon with the championship belt um, just because of pure vanity. Yeah. And I think, I think, WWE, I mean, it's not like we have to highlight all their sexism over the years. It's pretty well documented, but uh, they really have a problem with monster heels on the women's side of things. Uh, I mean, they, they pretty much, they ruin Nia Jax. Um, <laughs> they don't seem to be too hot about Shayna Baszler, even though I, I think she's great and has a ton of upside. Uh, even someone like Tamina Snuka, who is... I don't think she's huge by any means, but she's a lot bigger than most of the women on the roster. That's for sure. She looks a lot bigger in the ring. They just don't, they don't know what to do with her at all. Where again, if you take a promotion like AEW, uh, they're not afraid to push stars who are monster heels in their women's division. Their, uh, their champion right now is a monster heel and she defeated a, (laughs) tiny tiny woman which was a great match to watch you know it's like when you watch Rey Mysterio against Brock Lesnar you know it's just it's fun to watch um AEW has also used uh awesome Kong sparingly who is I she's got to be 900 years old at this point but she's pretty much the you know her <laughs> along with Bull Nakano are like kind of the prototypical women's monster heels and WWE just cannot for the life of them get behind someone like that they have to have someone who is you know Oh, she's sexy and hot, but also kind of a jerk. Like that's that is their ideal heel woman's champion, and that's pretty much what they've run with forever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to see them getting behind somebody like that. Yeah, I mean, if you read a lot of the Dirt Sheets post mania, it sure doesn't sound like they worked anything out with Ronda Rousey, which seemed like might have been their play. So, you know, being optimistic, you know, who could fit into that sort of monster role is, although not the way she's been booked lately in NXT, is Rhea Ripley, because she's fucking huge. She could, she's very physically imposing compared to a lot of the women on the roster. They could, in theory, book her that way. We'll see how it goes. I, I wouldn't wish that on her, frankly, the way they tend to book these people. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess to me the issue with Baszler is... I don't have any investment in her. I've really, I don't think I've ever seen her work a match outside of um, the Rumble. But um, yeah, I don't have any investment in her. I'm not particularly keen on the MMA style of wrestling to begin with. So I'm not like, well, they should have put the belt on Baszler. But the fact is, they they fed their entire division to Baszler. If they soured on her after that that match, uh, why on earth did they? book the uh elimination chamber the way that they did it was they just they they had a buzzsaw through every viable person in the division and then just you know cut up cut her out of the knees it's it's it seemed crazy to me but uh it, it to me it's less that they needed to get the belts on baszler and more that i i feel like it, it's not doing becky any favors to keep the belt on her at this point mm-hmm yeah, and I, I think you could have booked it differently, too, where maybe Becky retains, but uh, Baszler looks stronger than she did. You know, I, I this would have been a great opportunity for a DQ or something like that. You know, she puts a chokehold on Becky 
Becky grabs the rope. She refuses to break it, chokes the life out of Becky Lynch, but doesn't win the belt. Something like that. Anything where she doesn't outright lose to Becky Lynch, uh, but maybe doesn't doesn't get the belt. Something, anything. And that, then that kind of can set up future matches too. Oh, no holds barred. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, things like that. But instead, yeah, like you said, it's just it's weird to kind of cut her off at the knees. But uh, So th- there's another type of match here. Well, two others that I, I want to touch on. Uh, one is how do you book these traditional <laughs> WrestleMania matches where you have two guys in the ring and you know this one is only going to go for a couple minutes but you have to somehow make it compelling and interesting for uh, an empty stadium and the the two that we got this WrestleMania were uh, both for the respective WWE championship belts so uh, you had Brock Lesnar against Drew McIntyre and then Goldberg against Braun Strowman. And both of them sort of played out in the same way. And I I didn't have high expectations for either, but God, you want to talk about a big wet fart of a match. Uh, (laughs) Both of those, good Lord, stinking up the empty arena. So how did you guys react to these? I don't think they would have been anyone's favorite even if there was 80,000 people in a stadium, <laughs> but good Lord, not fun to watch, particularly the Goldberg one. How painful was that? Yeah. Uh, it's a long-term <laughs> booking again to me. Like what the fuck? <laughs> why does it, I understand they had to pivot with the, with the Roman Reigns stuff, but why the fuck did they book this this way? Like, what was the purpose of this Goldberg championship reign? And then putting Braun Strowman over him. It's, it just all reads insane. And also, who who the fuck wants to watch this? Like, don't book Bill Goldberg in an empty arena show. His the only no. reason to tune into Bill Goldberg is to watch him do like a twenty minute uh, entrance up to through the hallways of the arena, crowd chanting his name. The match is uh, always garbage. It's been garbage for uh, as long as he's been a wrestler, frankly. But uh, <laughs> I, and I I love Goldberg, so I, you know I take what I'm saying with a great assault. But he's he's never been. A wrestler, <laughs> and no, uh, I mean he's he's a wrestler in the same way that Hulk Hogan is a wrestler. He's got four moves and he does them, and that's that's kind of what he does. And if you want to see what Bill Goldberg looks like when someone who knows how to wrestle in the traditional sense gets in the ring with him, go on YouTube, go on the WWE Network, whatever you got to do, and uh, look up the old WCW match where Goldberg, in his prime, goes up against Lord Steven Regal who decides to do some technical mat wrestling with Goldberg. (laughs) And you just get to watch him get completely frustrated because, uh, again, this is a guy who doesn't have a robust move set. And unlike Hogan, the moves that he does have, he doesn't exactly pull them off well. He has a long and storied history of hurting people, ending careers. He kicked Bret Hart in the head and ended his career. Period. Full stop. He basically almost killed The Undertaker on a pay-per-view multiple times. He's an idiot. He uh, head-butted a locker before his match, but he really head-butted it, so he cut his head open and gave himself a concussion, and you got to watch him all wobbly-legged try to pick up a 300-pound man. It's it's insane. He's If if he keeps going at this rate, and he, he looks fine, like he looks ripped, he doesn't look bad, it doesn't matter. He's 
he clearly doesn't have his strength, which was the only thing he had going for him aside from his entrance. And now he's at a point where he's he's hurting people. So honestly, he was probably supposed to drop the belt anyways. But I think a big reason why he dropped the belt is uh, he can't hit his finishing move. And there's no way he's going to hit it on a guy like Braun Strowman, who is huge. Braun Strowman's hands, like the palms of his hands are the size of my torso. He's the largest man I have ever seen. I don't, there's no way he was going to pick him up. So it's just, yeah. it's baffling. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you. I just say, why the fuck? why make the match? Just cancel it, man. There's no reason. And then moving on to uh, Drew McIntyre and Brock Lesnar, this one, again, it's, it's kind of a hard sell because McIntyre, since he returned to WWE and they kind of positioned him as this uh, big heel character, I think he was he was doing pretty good work. He's a talented guy. If you watch his his independent stuff, it's miles better than what he's been doing in WWE. He's very dynamic, and I think he learned a lot when he left WWE and got on the indies. But now kind of pivoting, making him a face, which is not particularly believable, and then positioning him where he's the only guy that can deal with Brock Lesnar and blah, blah, blah. And you don't have a real build to this. And then to watch him take out Brock Lesnar in God, five minutes. It was strange. It was very, very strange to watch and not particularly satisfying. So uh, Coleman, you got anything good to say about either of these? <laughs> well, uh, fuck Goldberg and Strawman. I really don't even care. Um, care a little bit more about, McIntyre and Brock Lesnar, but I think that sort of that match was also a victim of just not having an audience. I think that those quick big man squash matches where there's a slight sense of unpredictability, like you know it's going to be short, but you know it's going to be high impact, that that really benefits from having a large crowd kind of losing their shit. And I think that that definitely took away from it this time around. Um, not that I expected them to have a competitive match because there was no audience, but um, yeah, I think we need to hear 70,000 people get the wind taken out of them in that yeah, scenario. Yeah, yeah I, I agree Imagine, completely. Imagine, I, I don't um, think that Goldberg Strowman would have... The crowd wouldn't have done that any favors. <laughs> they would have fucking no, the crowd would have taken a bathroom all break. That, and they should have. <laughs> yeah. I agree with the uh, the the Lesnar match though because uh, you know he he's a guy who is he's an asshole like that's his whole persona but also by all accounts that's pretty much who he is he's just this guy who's a complete physical freak like you look you look at him and you're like I don't know how a human can look like this he's just otherworldly and he's kind of a dick and whether you like him in the ring or not. Some of the best things that Brock Lesnar does is when he's taunting people in the ring. You know, I, I just the uh, there's a few WrestleManias back, but when he was just repeatedly German suplexing someone just over and over and over again, as he's known to do. And then he just turns to the guy and the camera just catches him saying suplex city, bitch. <laughs> just. And this wasn't a planned thing. It's just something that he said. And it was, I mean, he's a dick and it's funny. And that was just incidental, but it was so great. And then even at the Royal Rumble this year, where he was throwing out guys left and right and the crowd was booing him and blah, blah, blah. 
And then, uh, oh, geez, I forget his name, but he's the, uh, the the really big, fat, black guy from NXT. Um, help me out here. Keith Somebody, Lee. anybody. Keith Lee. Keith Lee. Thank you. So Keith Lee is coming to the ring, and the camera just happens to pan over to like get Brock Lesnar's like facial reaction to Keith Lee coming down. This is what they usually do during the Rumble, is, especially if there's only one guy in the ring. Is you know, Guy comes out, person in the ring reacts, and you just see Brock Lesnar go, ooh, big guy. <laughs> But again, this is like his genuine reaction to what he's seeing. And I have to believe because of the type of guy that Brock Lesnar is, and he flies on his own private jet, he doesn't really do much in the locker room. Like he's not involved in the, you know, the day-to-day camaraderie or whatever of the WWE locker room. This is probably the first time he's seeing Keith Lee. So he's legitimately like, ooh, big guy. (laughs) And yet when we see him in the ring, with Drew McIntyre, you get none of this. The match is silent, completely silent. It's insane to me. Just zero reaction from anyone. Well, I did. It's a total waste. I do recall reading reports that uh, Lesnar was like really pissed that they had to, that everybody had to be there because of COVID nineteen, and he apparently had an argument with Vince McMahon, and that was like the first match that they taped just to get it out of the way, just so Brock could leave. I think they did the match in one take, and he was like, all right, let's get this over with. I'm out of here. So that may have played into it a little bit, if those rumors are true, if they're not just innuendo. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys, because, again, McIntyre's a guy I'm not familiar with. Is is he a good worker? Because I was wondering what, what the reasoning was for keeping this thing under five minutes. Like, I mean, I know Lesnar matches aren't going to go 30 minutes or something, but there's no reason it felt like it couldn't have gone 10 to 15 or something, but I I don't know what McIntyre's work rate is or anything like that. I'm not really familiar with the guy at all, but it makes sense, I suppose, if if Lesnar was a foot out the door already. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, the last thing I want to touch on with WrestleMania is not the matches in the empty arena, but the two matches that they had where they decided to Oh, you know Steve Steve you I think we should talk briefly on the uh there's one other big match I think we should not completely overlook. Okay, that my, is my the mistake. One that is, uh, Dolph Ziggler and per, Otis. Perhaps the <laughs> Well, that's that, that's another of those matches that they should have just scrubbed from the card cuz it desperately needs a fucking audience, but uh yeah, no, the the match that is perhaps the most mystifying thing on the card to me, considering this is a pre-taped show that could be edited, and night two ran about a half an hour over. What the fuck was this Edge Randy Orton thing? Oh God! I I honestly I completely wiped that from my brain. That was <laughs> insanity. So this is a match where you have these these two guys who are both good in ring performers. They have a long history with each other. Uh, they could, you know, wrestle each other blindfolded, no problem. And WWE decides that they're going to let them have a no-holds-barred, do-whatever-you-want, empty arena, hardcore, falls-count-anywhere match, which you're like, uh, okay, strange choice, sure, but whatever. Maybe there'll be some fun spots that they set up around the empty arena and this, that, and the other thing. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. You want to talk about worst WWE <laughs> matches of all time? This skyrocketed to my number one. Again, I before you brought that up, I did not even think of it because I have erased it from my memory. But 
there's not a lot to say other than it went on for I'd have to check the actual I guess 36 run, run minutes. Uh, was it good god? Yeah, I was going to say it felt like 30 minutes. Well, I mean it felt like a lifetime, but <laughs> and I am not exaggerating when I say nothing happens in this. All they're doing is just kind of like punching each other, just walking around this empty arena, empty offices, uh, an empty gym where they're just sort of punching each other for 36 minutes. This is this is like anti-wrestling. I don't even know what the, what what the fuck. So just try to just talk me down from a ledge here. I don't have you ever seen anything worse than this? I don't know. I feel like I might slightly be in the minority. I mean, I didn't think it was great, but I didn't hate it as much as a lot of people seem to have. Um, I mean, I even even remember like Dave Meltzer live tweeting how terrible it was. I think for part of me, part of the sheen that it had on it was just seeing Edge again. I am an Edge fan, um, and just the story of him coming back, I think probably was enough to keep me invested um mm-hmm. there was that <laughs> one scene where they sort of recreate the uh chris benoit suicide um yeah, that, that was, was a choice just that was incredibly tone deaf um but i i mean i think if i reflect on it and think about it constructively and critically yeah it went on way too long and it was just a lot of this like punch punch kick get to the nine count, get back up, do it again in another space. Um, I think the ending sequence was pretty well done. Some good acting by Edge. Um, Mm. But yeah, I don't think it was... I also didn't view it necessarily as this huge disaster that a lot of people seem to think. And maybe I'm probably just wrong. (laughs) Um... But uh, I think, I mean... They Maybe were if it was six with... minutes instead of 36, then then you'd have a stronger oh, yeah. argument. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't go back and watch it, but if they could have edited it down at least by half the amount of time, I think it would have been... It was received a little bit better. Um, I mean, I think they acted their way pretty well, especially towards the end to make it a little bit more compelling. Um, but... I also view it through the lens of this being so non-traditional just as a card in general. And who knows what they would have had planned if they were doing this in a stadium full of people, a different environment. Um, I guess I just (laughs) am naive maybe, but I just sort of admire the fact that they were able to cobble it together. Um, But I do agree now that, yeah, it should have at the very least been edited down significantly yeah to me it's an issue of presentation because if they would have run this match as it currently exists in front of a live audience it would have been the quickest way to kill a crowd dead you'd ever seen like it it, it is just so slow and there's so much wrong with the presentation in this match to be like the announcing it went completely off the rails of this thing they were like fucking whispering in hushed tones throughout the thing and again well, yeah this that's is, i thought that definitely killed it too fucking michael cole just god like wh- why though it's pre-taped if you listen to it and you're like oh boy they bungled this commentary let's redo fucking the commentary. record it again guys bring in the other announced team we could fucking redo it we could cut it down make it work instead it was just endlessly you couldn't hear the announcers even 
and all you could hear was the ref going one two three and then someone would get up and and 10 seconds later one two three it's like this is just grating on, on the nerves i i i hated this thing i gotta say i don't have the emotional investment in edge so to me there was nothing there it was just like what the hell Myros's only emotional investment is an edging which is a totally different thing so that makes sense uh yeah i i yeah, could not yeah. fucking stand this match uh but yeah let's uh before we we move on to the other part of this podcast we should we should definitely talk about the the pre-taped uh film-like productions that we were presented with so each one of the two wrestlemania nights ended with one of these and Unlike the <laughs> fanless WrestleMania wrestling matches, this was uh, kind of like two mini movies, sort of. So the, the first one was The Undertaker versus uh, AJ Styles in a boneyard match, which they didn't do a very good job of explaining what a boneyard was. <laughs> uh, but it was just them in a weird graveyard that seemed to back up to someone's house and it was a cross between a wrestling match and a weird horror movie i guess <laughs> um and i i don't think i loved it but considering what it was this was pretty much as good as it could have been so uh, myros what are you what are your thoughts on the on the boneyard yeah, of the two, this one's really not for me. I mean, again, it, it's probably one of those things where I'm just, you know, I didn't grow up an Undertaker fan. I, I never really watched that era of WWF, and uh, I, I, I don't give a shit about The Undertaker. So when I see stuff like this, I'm like, well, I, I didn't hate it. it. It moved along. It was kind of amusing, but I... I it it doesn't have any great impact for me. I I just assume, you know, if they wheel out Hulk Hogan for stuff like this, then it you know it gets me in that place that this gets a, a lot of fans where it's like, oh yeah, can't can't wait to see him again, even if he's a broken down husk. But I I don't have that for the Undertaker at all. So I'm I I think the whole gimmick it just is goofy to me, and I I don't again I think they did as good a job as they could have with this match, except for, I don't understand what they're, they even referenced the uh, unholy Trinity thing mid match and that just nothing came of it. And I'm like, eh. I, I kept waiting for someone to show up who would be fun, but it never happened. But I, I think, I think that, if, uh, it was pretty decent. If Hogan did it, it would have been a little bit different because instead of the, the random druids popping out to attack the undertaker, it would have been a, a bunch of guys in KKK hoods, but um, you know, <laughs> It's fair. It's I'm sorry. Fair. Hulk Hogan's not racist anymore, right? He he's been brought back into the WWE fold. What a well, silly Hulk thing. Hulk Hogan's to say. a huge piece of shit, as is every like eighties wrestler, but that doesn't mean I don't have nostalgia for the act, you know. You're just mad because he fucked Brutus the Barber Beefcake, allegedly. <laughs> That's my all time favorite Hogan. Aware of this. Every I mean, every single Hogan rumor it's that has has come true except for that one we're still not sure like everyone's like oh he was a dick backstage and controlling and and buried everyone that's corroborated by everyone it's like oh he's a horrible racist who doesn't understand anything yep that seems to have uh be true and the only thing that we don't know is if he actually fucked brutus beefcake 
And if he did, you know what? Love is blind. I'm with you, Hulkster. Um, all the little Hulkamaniacs are behind you, but uh, it's just, you know, just just tell us. Come clean, buddy. We're here for you. Uh, and the second match <laughs> uh, was a little bit different. And by a little bit different, I mean, this is unlike anything WWE has ever done before. I think as far as pre-taped cinematic productions of things that are kind of wrestling adjacent, this is maybe the best thing they've ever done. And this was when they had The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, against John Cena. And one of the things that wrestling has lost over the years is since the late 90s, it's it's kind of made this steady march towards realism or real believable people and away from old school guys like The Undertaker, who was presented as this otherworldly, undead character who was you know beyond the realms of time and space and all this stuff but the fiend kind of brings back some of that that old school weirdness where you're like you know wrestling is is just completely ridiculous and you truly have to suspend your disbelief and this is something where i don't know if you can show this to a non-wrestling fan but it's if you are a wrestling fan it's undeniably entertaining so uh, coleman i'll let you take the reins on this one what what did you think about the uh the fiend bray wyatt against john cena well you sort of already said it for me it's one of the if it's, it's not maybe not the best but it's one of the best things wwe has ever done certainly within the last 15 years um i <laughs> i loved it um i've rewatched it several times already it's i mean I'm somewhat lapsed as a fan. Like I don't follow it as much as I used to, but this is something that would, if they would do this regularly, I would not be tuning out at any point. Um, and maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic, but I enjoyed the shit out of it. Just all of the inside jokes and sort of the breaking the fourth wall. It was very meta. It was, and just that it was, it's the most self-aware thing the WWE has done probably ever um and i mean that's more credit to bray wyatt and, and should be credit to john cena too i think he was a really good sport in this and i know he's a big supporter of bray wyatt's behind the scenes but yeah more of this please yeah I, wrestling has this long and storied tradition of having a very short-term memory and it's always fun to see something that kind of calls back to not only who people are now, but what they were. So the entire format of the match is uh, John Cena walking into Bray Wyatt's little fun house thing and then just getting transported to this other dimension where he has to not really wrestle Bray Wyatt, but wrestle with his past and who he is as a person and, and who the character John Cena is and who the man John Cena is. And how all those lines are blurred and that's not something that wrestling frequently does you know they they present us with characters not not people and those and those characters they're usually not a direct reflection of of who the person is and this is just such a bizarre self-aware blending of those two things and just bringing back you know when John Cena used to be a rapper and how embarrassing and stupid that was but how foundational it was to who he is now and and also calling back to what the WWE used to be when it was the WWF and just the the ridiculous promos and the uh the the set from Saturday night's main event and 
just all these little throwback things that they're not just fan service either. These are things that they all made sense in the context of what they were trying to do. And they were essential to the story they were trying to tell. And it was just, it was amazing to watch because it's, it was so much the antithesis of what you expect from WWE. And yet it, it kind of gets down to the very essence of, of pro wrestling broadly. So for me, it was the best non-traditional match of the weekend, hands down. And again, like you said, one of the best things they've done in God knows how long. So, uh, Myros, did you, I, I know you like this one a little bit better than the Undertaker match. Uh, yeah, I, I did. And, uh, again, I suppose I have more familiarity with Wyatt thanks to our little project here, but I, I think the guy's a freaking wizard because there's no reason this fiend gimmick should not be like the worst goddamn thing. And he makes it work. Uh, I, I I feel like this is almost like, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about wrestling is that sort of ring psychology. And this felt almost like sort of an evolution of that in this, in this produced fashion where it was just, it was just so fun to watch them talk about Hulk Hogan. This thing felt like a big middle finger to Hulk Hogan out of the way through. I I was half expecting a Hulk Hogan cameo. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. But I I guess that the the reason you wouldn't see something like that is because well, a if he got the coronavirus, he'd probably uh, keel over dead. Uh, and b yeah, I think it was just like John Cena as Hulk Hogan. You know, that was kind of the whole through line of the thing. And I, I thought it was fucking great. I I loved it. I again. I'm with you. If this was if this was the WWE's product, then I would be a weekly viewer. Absolutely, it's a wholly unique text too. That if this is how they operated all the time, I think that would actually grow their audience. Um, mm-hmm. Just because there there is nothing like that, and you can't even really describe it. Yeah, it's it's genuinely genuinely great, and it has all the right elements of camp and seriousness and and self-awareness and just so many things that you know you'd think they'd be oil and water but it just it works so so well um and and just kind of thinking about how matt hardy laid the groundwork for this when he was in, in the death throes of tna when he was doing his character there and this just kind of takes it to a whole nother level so if you're a wrestling fan, definitely watch it. If you're not a wrestling fan, maybe don't watch it because that it'll just completely fuck you up. That's not a good place to start. Uh, you know, we, we do got to kind of keep things moving. We're, we're, we're running a little low on time here, but I want to talk just for a few minutes about the second season of Dark Side of the Ring, which is a short documentary series that vice is doing and this is available on youtube um i i think they they i think they gate the episodes for a little bit for paid people and then they eventually release them on youtube so you can you can kind of catch up eventually um but this is probably the best behind the scenes documentary series that it, i mean not just series but documentary period that anyone has ever done on wrestling, and I think the the first season stumbled a little bit, but the the second season has been absolutely incredible. And this is the kind of thing too where if you if you're the kind of person who says, "Oh, I don't like wrestling; it's fake; it's whatever; it's this; it's that," 
this shows you the other side of wrestling and how just profoundly fucked up and real it is for these people. And so far this season, we've seen uh, the, the Chris Benoit story, which is just heartbreaking and awful in so many ways, but essential viewing if you want to see what wrestlers are kind of putting their bodies through. And then from there, it, it pivots to the story of New Jack, who, I mean, that name doesn't mean anything to most people. A lot of wrestling fans, that name doesn't mean anything, but he is a sort of foundational uh, 90s hardcore wrestler. And just to see how he's lived his life, the things that he's done to himself, the things that he's done to other people, uh, he's basically tried to murder at least three or four human beings like in the ring. So that's something. And then also kind of pivoting back to maybe something a little less depressing, but still depressing nonetheless, they covered the Brawl for All, which was in the late 90s when WWE decided, hey, what if we had these guys box like a like a real fighting mat, you know, like a real fight, not wrestling. Let's actually have them hit each other. What's going to happen? And just how disastrous that was for uh, the wrestlers themselves, but also the business as a whole. So I guess, uh, Coleman... I know, I know you've been watching this too. So what have been your big takeaways from, from dark side of the ring? And would you, would you recommend this to someone, whether they're a wrestling fan or maybe not a wrestling fan? Oh yeah. I I already have (laughs) on the streets. Um, It's fantastic. I think I agree with what you said too, about season one. I think that that sort of stumbled a little bit. I almost thought that was like a little too inside wrestling. Uh, But this second season has been fascinating. Um, It's certainly, um, more worth your time than Tiger King. Um, uh, the Brawl for One, uh, which just aired last week, I mean, that. I mean, I nearly wept for yeah. poor old Bart Gunn. <laughs> um, I'm also enjoying this. Um, I mean, it really gives even non fans just like an insight into. Yeah, I think of Jim Cornette and his like blood feud with Vince Russo and how real that actually is. And I can't think of any other entertainment business that has such like a visceral um, (laughs) reaction from somebody against one of their contemporaries as much as like Cornette wants to kill Vince Russo. Um, The new Jack one was fascinating. It was probably my favorite one of the entire run so far. Um, And just... (laughs) Again, like getting this weird insight into the weird business of wrestling. Like he stabs this guy in the ring, goes to prison, and the guy he had stabbed comes to visit New Jack in prison. Say, hey, I'll drop all the charges if you agree to go on the road with me and use this as an angle to promote our matches. It's the most carny thing that you can think of. And it's just so wrestling and just so not what anybody does Mm -hmm. in any other sort of business. Somebody who attempts to essentially murder you. Oh, well, let's go yeah. make some money off of it's, this. It's honestly crazy. Myros, I, I know you're coming from the background of a, you know, non-traditional semi-fan. Uh, how, how, what, what is Dark Side of the Ring? How does this season kind of gone for you? Is, is this something that you would recommend to other people? Or because I just want to like shout for the rooftops, like you got to watch this shit, but also it's kind of fucked up. And I wonder sometimes if it's a little too inside baseball, but it seems like the second season is something almost anyone can kind of sink their teeth into. 
Well, I, I, you know, I'm probably not, I'm probably more insider than most at this stage. I, again, not that I watch the product weekly, not by any stretch. I probably watch two to three shows a year, frankly, but I still do watch a lot of shoots because I, I find the whole industry pretty interesting. So, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm familiar with going in, but I do think it'd be a good, you know, if you're saying, uh, for, for someone unfamiliar with the industry, don't go in and watch that fiend match, uh, cold. This, this might be a really good entry point. Cause it's, you know, it's got that very thin blue line, Errol Morris uh, style to it. And uh, you guys are harder on the first season maybe than I am. I, I was looking through it to see where I thought it might've stumbled. And then, you know, I think I was quite fond of the whole run, frankly, I, I, I think it was excellent in the first season. And again, maybe, maybe a little too inside baseball, but again, I, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't over my head. I'll say that. And I was, I think my favorite episode of the run is the Bruiser Brody episode thus far, but uh, everything, everything they've done has been really excellent. I think I, I really enjoyed it. And that brawl for all one, was kind of indicative of that when you're talking about the cornet stuff because you know that they still even have cornet is good because uh, he's an interesting personality and of course he's gotten himself into some hot water this year but it's wrestling it, you <laughs> you almost can't uh, deal with people who aren't problematic at a certain stage but uh he's they, that was in theory like the slightest episode they've especially what they've done this season and it still had that sort of moment at the end where Cornette's just like, you know, wrestling's the most important thing in my life. And it, it, it just it has a real emotional impact. It's a heft of the thing. I, I, yeah, I really love this show. Absolutely. Yeah, it, well, it made me care about the Brawl for All for the first time in my life. I remember it being on at the peak of my fandom as a kid. And every they'd always change the lighting in the arena and then that theme music would come on. I dreaded seeing those Brawl for All matches every week. Like, I was pissed that they were on, and I didn't care. Um, now I, I feel a little bad about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of these guys really, like, literally mm -hmm. risked their health. And, uh, I mean, I guess all wrestlers do do an extent. Sure. But, well, uh, and, I mean, if anybody's yeah. not familiar with what the Brawl for All was, it, like I mentioned before, these these guys were put into a situation where they came up with this idea for – you know, let's let's have an actual boxing tournament. You know, let's let these guys fight for real instead of, oh, fake wrestling, because uh, there's this big push in the late 90s to make everything more and more real. But there's only so much artifice that you can strip away from professional wrestling where it becomes something completely, completely different. And you had all these guys who, uh, you know, a lot of wrestlers were like, I'm not doing this. Why the fuck would I do this? And it makes sense because you know, you could you could legitimately get hurt. So all the people that were in this tournament for the most part were people who had nothing to lose. They weren't they weren't big main event stars. They weren't stars at all. They were just guys. But they were promised a big payday and a big push as a, you know, an actual wrestler if they could get through to the end. But the problem was is WWE was still thinking in wrestling terms. So in their head they were like, well, you know, this guy will win or this guy will win and that'll be fine. And he can have a big feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin. It'll be perfect. And when it turned out that, you know, this pretty much nobody, Bart Gunn, who's a good wrestler, a good guy, but never a big star when he ended up winning. And then it's just like, what do you do? What do you do with someone like this? And their answer was put him in a boxing match with a professional boxer 
where he got instantly KO'd, just completely looked like his head spun around like a top. And it's it is. It's it's honestly depressing just because all the injuries that happened throughout this, and you're like, damn, all these guys wanted were was a chance to be something more, and they thought this was their only shot. And it's it's just really demoralizing. Uh for me, the the Benoit part one and part two of the Chris Benoit story, that's been the high point for me just because as a kid growing up, I mean, pretty much I would say after the early 90s WWE started to bottom out a little bit and I I pivoted to started watching more WCW stuff Chris Jericho Eddie Guerrero and especially Chris Benoit those were my guys and Dean Malenko too I loved watching their matches just because they were doing something on a completely different level and I loved Benoit because he was small but he never wrestled like a small guy you know uh, it's it's like watching an old Dynamite Kid match from the 80s. You're just seeing something completely different, so far ahead of its time. And then to watch what happens to him and how he can't deal with the emotional trauma of his friend dying, and then that sort of rolls into issues that he's having with steroids, which rolls into issues that he's having with CTEs, and just how that all ends. It's like wrestling is some serious shit. These people are putting their bodies on the line and it fucking hurts. You're, you're hurting yourself night in and night out. Yeah. And watching this Benoit one too, like it really brought me back that to that week when he, when that happened, when he murdered his family and committed suicide for me, even though I was a very lapsed fan, wasn't really paying attention at all to the product. (laughs) I mean this very seriously, that was almost like a 9-11 moment for me. Um, just the way it affected me and just how I thought about it and even thought like, man, can wrestling ever get back to normal? Can I ever feel good about watching this again? Um, I mean, I still have some residual feelings from that period, but just like those months after that and just seeing wrestling constantly covered in mainstream media, but for this awful horrific tragic mm-hmm. reason um it was a it was a rough time obviously i mean not to make it about me but uh i mean for any for the wrestling industry and i think for fans as well yeah yeah and, and the episode's just as much about uh, guerrero as it is benoit and that's the most gutting stuff to me is just guerrero's death is like yeah, that's just it's so goddamn mm-hmm. sad to watch it. It really is. It's uh it's it's pretty gut-wrenching stuff. Um well, unfortunately, we got to we got to wrap this thing up. We're running a little bit long right now, but uh I will say if you're listening, if you're just a casual wrestling fan, maybe you're not a wrestling fan at all, maybe you're pissed cuz we're not talking about movies. Uh first off, don't worry. We get we got we got some good movie content coming your way. Uh more than you could ever ask for, some might say. Uh, in addition to that, seriously, genuinely, genuinely, if you're not a wrestling fan, watch Dark Side of the Ring. Um, even a, a, a giant curmudgeonly baby like Sean Glynis, I would recommend that he watch this series. I think he'd get a kick out of it. Uh, I know the other Optimism Vaccine guys would definitely get a, you know, a lot of enjoyment out of these. And uh, it's, it's a great series, whether you like it or not, wrestling that is. Um, but you'll, you'll dig this for sure. Anyways, uh, if you enjoyed the show today, do us a big favor. Click on the link that is in the description of this podcast. That'll take you to our iTunes page. Please give us a five-star written review. It helps us a lot. 
uh, makes us more visible. And the more visible we are, the easier we are to find. The easier we are to find, uh, more people can listen. And if more people are listening, we can make more great things for you, dear listener. And that's important. Uh, also, somebody gave us a like a three-star review, and it just said, like, uh, I don't agree with what these guys say, but it's pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for that, pal. No, for real, though, uh, hook us up with a good review. We need them. Lord knows we need them. Uh, if you want to yell at us about wrestling or movies or anything else, you can find us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. You can yell at me specifically at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Adam Myros isn't on the internet. Uh, Coleman's kind of on Twitter, but not really. Coleman, what's your Twitter handle again? It's Colemania. That's K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. There you go. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, he's not very active, but maybe if you yell at him more, he'll get active. So, yeah, tweet, tweet at uh, me. Help me figure this thing call out. Him, call him a big piece of shit. He needs that. Knock him down a peg. <laughs> uh, other than that, you can email us, <laughs> optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Adam Myros is standing by, refreshing the inbox as we speak. And with that, uh, Coleman, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, Homer! <laughs> Wait, I, I think I think you mean 